Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. And now for an orientation to the topic for today's episode. 48 of the 50 states comprising the United States of America, excluding Hawaii and Arizona, subscribe to a practice that results in changing clock time biannually alternating between standard time and daylight saving time. In the fall, specifically the first Sunday in November, citizens in these 48 states turn their clock time back one hour, with this event colloquially referred to as fall back. States will remain on this clock time, known as standard time, until early spring, specifically the second Sunday in March, when the clocks are moved one hour forward with this event colloquially referred to as spring forward. This clock time, known as daylight saving time, maintains until the next fall back. Science has unearthed significant acute health-related consequences to clock change, particularly in relation to spring forward, when the clocks are shifted to daylight saving time. For example, Ellis and colleagues published findings in Chronobiology International evidencing a significant increase in missed medical appointments following the shift to daylight saving time. Additionally, Zhang and colleagues published findings in PLOS Computational Biology, suggesting that the shift to daylight saving time results in a population-wide elevated risk for cardiovascular-related problems, such as heart attacks, mental health problems, immune-related problems, and physical injury. Yet, It is not solely these significant acute consequences of clock change, particularly the shift to daylight saving time, that are relevant to the discussion of how to best proceed as a nation. For example, year-long adoption of daylight saving time would address the acute problems with clock change, but also creates a scenario whereby morning sunlight would be notably delayed for some U.S. citizens in certain geographic regions during winter months. This consequence has major implications related to the safety of students traveling to school and overall wellness of society, among other factors. Yet, at the same time, year-long adoption of permanent standard time has the contrasting consequence of darkness emerging much earlier in the evening, sometimes in the late afternoon, early evening, in some regions across winter months. This early darkness has been argued to reduce likelihood for exercise after school and work, as well as have negative impact on the economy due to less people going out to shop, have dinner, etc. in the evening. In 2018, U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, a representative of Florida, introduced the Sunshine Protection Act, which proposed establishing permanent daylight saving time in the United States. The bill failed three times before being passed unanimously by the Senate on March 15th in 2022. However, progression of this legislation halted in the House of Representatives, with the 117th Congress ending before the House voted on the bill. As such, the Sunshine Protection Act currently lives in a state of limbo. Given the current legislative landscape related to clock change and the widespread implications that cementing standard time, daylight saving time, or some variation will have on society, it is important for professional organizations with expertise in specific domains affected by this change to share their knowledge and ultimately position on the matter. This episode is principally focused on the recent position statement released by the Sleep Research Society in the journal Sleep, entitled, It is Time to Abolish the Clock Change and Adopt Permanent Standard Time in the United States a Sleep Research Society position statement. This position statement reviews the history of clock change in the United States, the health and well-being consequences of the biannual clock change, the arguments for permanent standard time as well as those for permanent daylight saving time, 
and the ultimate recommendation of the SRS, which is to adopt permanent standard time. In this episode, I am joined by the author of this position statement, Dr. Beth Mallow, to discuss the content in the position statement and the overall complexity of determining the best policy for an entire nation that varies greatly in geography, priorities, beliefs, academic, occupational, and social schedules, and other individual characteristics. Before diving into the interview portion of today's episode, here is a brief background on today's guest, Dr. Beth Mallow. Dr. Beth Mallow is Professor of Neurology and holds the Burry Chair in Cognitive Childhood Development at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She earned her medical degree from Northwestern University and trained in neurology at the Harvard Teaching Hospitals and then pursued training and research in sleep medicine at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. She currently serves as Director of the Sleep Division at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. She lives in Brentwood, Tennessee with her husband and is the mother of two college-aged sons. She has a passion for communicating science to the public through writing and public speaking. And she recently testified to a U.S. Congressional Committee on the benefits of eliminating daylight saving time and adopting permanent standard time. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Beth Mallow discussing the recent position statement released by the Sleep Research Society in the journal Sleep, entitled, It is Time to Abolish the Clock Change and Adopt Permanent Standard Time in the United States, a Sleep Research Society position statement. I hope you enjoy. And now for the interview portion of today's episode. Dr. Beth Mala, welcome to the SRS podcast. I must say, thank you so very much for taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with us to discuss your recent publication. But before diving into that, I must ask, how are you doing today? Thank you so much, Jesse. I'm doing great. It's, it's good to be here. It's great to have you, and I, I feel blessed that, um, one, you accepted this invitation, thank you, and two, that that naturally afforded the opportunity to meet you, as I've heard wonderful things, but never had the opportunity, so me sitting here in a privileged position, uh, getting to meet Beth, so thank you for that, and also, I know the listeners can't see it, but Beth has this amazingly warm, inviting kind of ambiance with this blue background in her home. I really appreciate it, Beth. It makes me feel very comfortable. Well, I'm really excited to be here, uh, Jesse, and to talk about this really important topic with you. Fantastic. And, And we'll dive deep into that soon. First and foremost, though, Beth, I must say Happy New Year. And I know myself, I had some specific New Year's resolutions related to science that I am hopeful to accomplish across this year, some related to peer review, publications, things like that. Did you make any New Year's resolutions related to science? Well, I love to communicate science to the public, and people can look up my TED Talk if they want. I really... I really find it exciting and impactful to be able to take challenging concepts related to sleep and circadian rhythms and make them more digestible for people. That's one of the things I really enjoy doing. Well, you do a phenomenal job at that. And I will put a link in the show notes to the TED Talk. That's called The Art of Communicating Science. And I must say, listeners, it is worth the watch. It's not just about the art of communicating science, but really the art of communicating difficult topics and ones that people disagree upon or may have differential opinions on and how to do that empathetically, but also pragmatically and not dogmatically. And I think those themes will be very central to Beth's paper that we reviewed today. So I'll definitely plug that in the show notes. Now, Beth, I did give the listeners an introduction, or I provided a background to you in the show introduction, and thank you for your help in that biography. But I still think it's always helpful for people to get a lens into the guest by having the guest provide their own story on how they kind of made it to this point, as well as some other related questions. So we'll start with this, Beth. Uh, Can you please share a little bit about your journey to sleep and circadian research to this point? Yes, Jesse. I 
started out as a neurologist. I, I was always interested, even as a kid, in how the brain worked. And I thought I would end up in psychology, actually. Uh, but I decided after thinking about all the different options that medicine would give me the most latitude to do the things I wanted to do to help people to understand how the brain worked. And I found myself gravitating towards sleep because it's kind of like the last frontier. There's so much that we still don't know about why we sleep and what happens in our sleep and memory and sleep and even dreams and sleep. I found myself really intrigued, not just by what happens in sleep, but by how sleep can impact almost every aspect of human health. For example, when we're sleeping better, it can help our heart, it can help our brain. People with seizures have less seizures in certain types of sleep. Um, when we treat sleep problems, it can really impact our, our well-being. It's actually, I tell people when they come to my clinic that when we diagnose sleep apnea or some other sleep problem, we're actually improving, likely improving other parts of their health and quality of life. And that's, that's, really, that's really impactful to me to be able to do that for people. I love hearing that. And, and we share uh, kind of that vocational passion and that, that understanding of sleep's import. And that's what cemented my career journey as well, is the fact that sleep shares this really intimate bi-directional relationship with just about every aspect of functionality. You know, when you're experiencing chronic pain, that degrades your sleep, which in turn make, exacerbates the chronic pain or leads to worse recovery or response to treatment. And those relationships are basically across the board. And I, and I love how you presented it at the end in terms of working with your patients from a motivational factor, improving sleep health is not just specific to sleep. You know, when, when Jesse breaks his arm and he gets a cast, the focus there is the recovery of the arm. And it really is kind of uh, narrow in that sense, but to make it seem to, to educate individuals about how widespread the benefit of improved sleep health is, um, I think is, is remarkable. And it's still a, a fight in some ways to get that knowledge out. And I think in some ways that's actually at the root of our discussion today. So I think we'll get to that later on. Um, but Beth, when you're not advancing the frontier of sleep and or circadian research or other forms of research or disseminating science appropriately or treating patients with various neurological and sleep-related disorders. Uh, what do you do in your spare time? Well, that's a great question. I There's a lot of things I like to do. I, I sing. I used to sing with a competing Sweet Adeline acapella group until COVID, and I've taken a break from that for now, given COVID and all. And then I, I got some more interesting uh, I shouldn't say more interesting, but some different varied hobbies across the, the, the way. I am now doing a lot of public speaking. So I'm an officer in my Toastmasters club. It's called Toastmasters International, and it makes you into a better public speaker. Um, so I've been doing that. And then I really enjoy spending time with my husband and my family hiking, running, uh, I do some yoga, I swim. I, I like to be physically active. It makes me feel really good. And I'm also trying to write more. I'm trying to become a better communicator and uh, write for the public. I've, I've written many papers for my colleagues and done peer-reviewed research. Uh, now I'm really turning to how can, as you said, how can we explain things to people and in ways that they understand? Uh, I'm working on getting to be a better writer. There's so much there that I just want to praise and I and hear a lot of kind of a growth mindset and continually taking on new challenges and wanting to evolve and progress. And, and I just love kind of approaching life from that perspective. Um, we also share 
very similar hobbies with loving to hike, be in nature, running. Uh, actually, after this interview, I'm going to go out and have a nice run myself. So thanks for setting the stage for that. But in true serendipity, Beth, we've been informally uh, forming a, a band from uh, SRS podcast guest members. And we have, I think, four or five individuals from guests who have endorsed playing musical instruments. But you were the first to endorse being a singer. So uh, we may, if something ever comes out or comes to be with an SRS band, uh, we may have to come and uh, leverage your skill set. I would enjoy that. Oh, and I have one more, which is you alluded to in the in the Vanderbilt TED Talk, which is uh, civil discourse and having challenging conversations with people we disagree with politically or otherwise. And I actually want your listeners to know that can bring you a lot of joy. Number one, I know it sounds strange that I would say that, but um, I think it helps us connect with others and see the humanity in others. And number two, there are a lot of organizations that are doing that right now, like everywhere, local, national, you can do it on Zoom. Um, so I want you to also maybe leave your listeners with that as another hobby. <laughs> I know it sounds like a I think I referred to it in the TED Talk as an eclectic hobby, but, um, you know, talking to people we disagree with. But I think it's super important. And it's also made me a better science communicator, those skills. And it's a critically important skill and one that we're not entrained on, at least from my perspective, through kind of the standard academic curriculum. I remember in my I don't even think the, the course is called this anymore, but in my social studies class, I think they have a new term for it, but we learned how to debate. And that's a whole different model than having a discussion. And nowadays, I think a lot of our problems from a kind of social perspective is our ability to interpersonally communicate in that manner, in a more discussion-based manner rather than a debate manner. And so I love that that is kind of a, a principle that you're driving. It's fantastic. And I can already see myself progressing just from this one conversation with you. So thank you for your efforts on that front. An important question here, Beth, and I think I have a sense given the themes you've landed on thus far, but maybe you'll surprise me. If you weren't, if you hadn't chosen the career path you did and you current, you weren't at where you're at currently, what career would you choose? You could choose anything in the world. Wow. That's a great question. Probably Probably something having to do with advocacy, political advocacy, possibly political office. I, I think that there's so many things that impact our, our health and well-being and really making a difference from a public policy standpoint so that everyone can benefit regardless of their income levels or uh, where they live. Uh, I just, I think that health is so vital to our well-being that even if I weren't a physician, I do feel like I would find some other way to make sure that I could help improve the public health of, of the American people. Beautiful. And the altruism just, just, pours out of you. Uh, and you have my vote, Beth. I don't care what platform you run on, you have my vote. Uh, and to all the SRS members, if we have to vote for Beth, we will. So keep keep a lookout for Beth on, on the next docket at some point. But Beth, I think it's a good time now that we've given the listeners a, we pull back the curtains a little bit on Beth, shown some of the personality. Let's transition to a little bit more of the science. And I, I think a good way to rev the engines there is one of my favorite segments in this podcast, which is the keyword association. And it's more or less a word association with a scientific spin. So to the listeners out there, I'll be uh, providing a word or a phrase to Beth and Beth will be responding with the first thing that comes to mind. 
And truthfully, I made these about an hour and a half ago, so I doubt that Beth has insight into the words. So these would be hot off the cognitive press, if you will. Uh, Beth, are you ready for the keyword association? Yes. Outstanding. And I love the enthusiasm. First word, sunlight. Mood. Am I supposed to say one word or a phrase or? Whatever comes to mind. Yes, I think we all, well, maybe not all, but many of us listening, when we have had three or four cloudy days and the sun comes out, it's like, wow, I feel so good. Whether you're basking in it outside or even if it's 30 degrees and you're inside, but it's like right now it's streaming in my window and it's probably 40 degrees here in Nashville. Uh, So I'm not outside in it but it feels so good. I feel so awake. I feel so alive. I feel so energetic. I love that description. And it it resonates too much with me right now, being in, in Madison, Wisconsin, in the last week we've had, which has been largely gray, except for Sunday, which was this extremely vibrant, clear-skied sun, 35-degree, atypically warm January day, And I just felt cleansed. Everything you described there, I felt energized. I needed less caffeine. I was alert. I was, everything felt better. So very much uh, good friends with the sunlight. Next, this is a phrase in our keyword association, morning light exposure. Morning light exposure to me means, first thing that comes to mind is that, sense of having energy drawn into me that I'm being exposed to light and I have all this energy now that's been drawn into me from being exposed to the light. Perfect. And as I like to share with people, to me, morning light exposure is essential for sleep health. I say when it comes to sleep hygiene, a good night of sleep begins when you first wake up in the morning, meaning that we can do things, behaviors like get light exposure, go for walks, whatever it may be that can inform our circadian biology and help us later on with in positively influencing our sleep ability and quality. Um, but I love the way Beth unpacked that. Beth, here is our next phrase, circadian biology. That's a harder one, circadian biology, because people may not get that right away, but circadian means 24 hour or about 24 hour. And biology is, think of it as every living cell in your body. So it's your cells in your body and every living thing trying to adapt and adjust to what's going on in the world around us. I like it. That's a Almost a textbooky response to what is circadian biology. I like it. Now, what about circadian misalignment? Circadian misalignment to me is a pretty wonky term. And if I use it, which I have in my in my interviews, I'm really careful to explain it because otherwise it sounds really, really complicated and almost ivory tower-ish. I explain it as it's a wonky term when what's going on in our bodies is not lined up with what's going on in the rest of the world. So there's a mismatch between what's going on in the world and what's going on in in us. And the other term that sometimes I'll use interchangeably that's easier is social jet lag. In other words, there's, we all know what jet lag is. We all, many of us have had the privilege of flying to Europe or somewhere else, or even going, I guess, from the West Coast to the East Coast or the East Coast to the West Coast. But um, even if we haven't, we know what it means. We know that our bodies are off from what's going on in the place that we've just flown to. And what social jet lag means is we're not actually flying anywhere, but something is off with our social schedule. So for example, 
teenagers who might stay up until two in the morning or later on a Friday or Saturday night, and then they have to get up for school Monday morning at, I don't know, 6, 6.30 to get to school by 7.15, 7.30. That's social jet lag when you have that disconnect between what you were doing on the weekend and what you're doing in the morning. And that can also apply to any kind of mismatch between what's going on in your body and your brain and what's going on in the world around you. Beautiful. And I got two more for you that I think will prepare us for flight, so to speak. Uh, The first one here, Beth, we'll start with clock change. Clock change is when we change our clocks Our physical clocks, our our phones, our wristwatches, the clock on our microwave or in our car. And this can happen for a variety of reasons, including going to a different time zone, or it can also, so Eastern time zone, Central time zone, whatever. Or it can also be what we do to ourselves twice a year for unknown nebulous reasons, which is we move the clock forward in the spring, spring ahead, and we move the clock an hour backward in the fall, fall back. So we have this twice yearly moving of our clocks by one hour back and forth. Definitely sets the stage for our deeper dive. But last one here for you, Beth, Sunshine Protection Act. Wow, that's a great name, isn't it? <laughs> the the um, Sunshine Protection Act sounds really good because we've just talked about how we love sunshine and sunshine exposure. It's unclear, though, what we're protecting. And you can't make more sunshine. If we could make more sunshine, if we could have more sunshine on a cloudy day, that's a song, I think, right? I've got sunshine on a cloudy day. That would be the Sunshine Protection Act, right? Or maybe even if we could make more sunshine, so it would be lighter, even if it's cloudy, you'd still have sunlight for longer. I, I think we'd all want that. If we could have more sunlight, particularly in the winter, we wouldn't be having this discussion about daylight saving time at all. We wouldn't need to move things around or nobody would have ever thought we had to. But um, so I, I do have to say I have problems with the Sunshine Protection Act, which is a legislative act, because I don't really see where it's protecting sunshine. I see where maybe it's moving sunshine around. But if you move it from one part of the day to another part of the day, which is what it did with um, advocating for permanent, permanent daylight time, then you're not going to have it in the morning. And as I think we'll get into, morning light is really, really important for health. What a name indeed. Uh, and I, I share that sentiment with you that it seemed to be an intentional kind of tactical strategy to label it in that capacity. And it, and it's a misnomer, if you will, because as you pointed out, you're not protecting, we're not creating more sunlight. We're not, you know, it, it, we're just repositioning things based on how the legislation unfolds here. So I love your response there. And thank you for handling, navigating, giving a very, very thoughtful keyword association. And now we're prepared for flight. So as I mentioned in the introduction, Today's episode is going to focus specifically on your recent position statement published in the journal Sleep, uh, which is entitled, It is Time to Abolish the Clock Change and Adopt Permanent Standard Time in the United States, a Sleep Research Society position statement. As always, listeners, we will link to the article in the show notes, um, but we'll have Beth give us kind of a 10,000-foot view of the position statement before we go into kind of the deeper themes of the discussion as a whole. So Beth, this published perspective is is recognized as a position statement. Um, I kind of have two questions that are intersecting in many ways. 
why did the Sleep Research Society need to produce such a statement? And and what sort of impact can these statements have on social change or legislation broadly? The reason, Jesse, that the Sleep Research Society wanted to come out with such a statement is um, they are now part of the large number uh, of organizations focused on sleep as well as medicine that are advocating for permanent standard time given its health benefits. And this is a club that the American Medical Association is now in, most recently joined, uh, American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Um, there's a Society for Biological Rhythms. There's a whole host of uh, organizations, even organizations that go beyond medical societies, like um, I think the Parent Teacher Association and um, Start School Later, where they really want to have um, healthy teens, healthy kids, and healthy school hours. They they see the synergy with with um, permanent standard time. Number one, the Sleep Research Society wanted to have a position statement so that people would know where they stood. And um, so that was that was the reason for the position statement. Beyond that, getting to your second question, we wanted to explain it in a way that would make sense. We didn't just want to say, this is what we think is good for you. This is what we think is good for the American people. We wanted to actually explain it in a way that made sense. And also, I think it's important, acknowledge the other side. Um, basically, explain why there's even a debate, because if there isn't a debate, I mean, if, there, if it's clear that we should have permanent standard time, there wouldn't be a debate. So really trying to get the word out about why the arguments favor permanent standard time. And even the bigger, the bigger discussion point, which is getting rid of going back and forth to begin with, is which is maybe where we should, where we should focus for a few moments. Yeah, and and you know, I love how you point out the import of presenting both sides of the debate. You know, I think both of us you authored this paper. I'm in the field of sleep and circadian research training as a sleep clinician as well. Biased, right? We believe in permanent standard time, but that does not mean that we can't see relevant reasons why daylight savings time year round may also have its own unique benefits. And the central theme, I think, in this discussion is that there is no universal one size fits all answer that's going to be appreciated by all there's going to be trade-offs here, uh, positively and negatively, on various aspects of society, whether that's well-being, economics, all sorts of things, some of which are foreseen and probably some that are unforeseen at this point, some of which are direct and some of which are indirect. And so I think it's a very complicated decision, but one that has a lot of widespread kind of cascades, if you will, and important cascades. And I love how you approach this paper. Because the SRS did produce something in 2020. It was championed by doctors Kimberly Hahn and Hans van Dagen. It was entitled The Biological Clock, Sleep, and the Debate About Daylight Savings Time. And this was an educational paper. So it seemingly more presented kind of what we know about how these factors interrelate with one another. How does a position statement, for those out there who may not be aware, differ from that of, say, an educational paper? I think a position statement differs from an educational paper in that you're stating where the Sleep Research Society falls on the topic. It's still educational in that you're educating why and you're providing reasons. And as I appreciate all your kind words, I really tried to present both sides in this paper um, as a good debater would, or as a good, I shouldn't say as a good debater would, but as people who are involved in debate would, where you, you value the other side's arguments in terms of at least 
hearing them out and being able to, um, to listen to them and respond to them. Uh, so I think that's where the position statement comes out is, or, or is defined is, you go back and forth, you educate, and then you also say, given all the weight of the evidence, given everything that we know, this is where the Sleep Research Society stands, and we stand on the position that um, permanent standard time is the healthier choice. Beautiful, and thank you for that kind of orientation to the main take-home, which is also in the title, but also really distinguishing between the two kind of concepts there. It wasn't always clear to me at first. I kind of thought that initially the 2020 paper had a bit of a position statement vibe to it, but I do see distinguishing features here. And I will, again, emphasize to listeners, go read this position statement. Beth does a phenomenal job, truly, of presenting both sides of the fence here uh, and, and showcasing the many layers that are relevant in this discussion. Oh, Jesse, I just wanted to jump in. The the other thing I'm really pleased, the editor-in-chief of Sleep made this an editor's choice um, article, which means that it's freely open. You don't have to even be a member of SRS or ASM to read it and access it. It can be accessed by anyone who has internet access, and you can also share it freely on social media. So I'm thrilled about that because this way we can kind of disseminate it out there to anyone who needs to read it. Beautiful. And thank you for for plugging that. And at its root, and you you shared this kind of in our pre-interview discussion as we were going back and forth establishing rapport, a lot of this is about education and disseminating knowledge to the general public. It's not just about this singular debate, but just drawing attention to sleep health, circadian health, and all these factors that may not be common knowledge to an individual. Uh, So I love that this is freely available, that it can be disseminated freely, all sorts of things like that. Thank you. In the name of open science, thank you for that, uh, editor-in-chief of sleep. So I think we've set a, a good platform to go deeper into the weeds, get our weed whackers out. Clearly, the concluding remarks is that the SRS supports permanent standard time over permanent daylight savings time and certainly over switching between the two. But let's dive deeper into the weeds. And honestly, you said it, right? Your paper does include a lot of educational pieces of information. In fact, I learned a lot about the historical underpinnings of clock change, daylight savings time in the United States. Perhaps a good place for us to kind of start the deeper dive discussion is educating the listeners on on how this came to be, because it's a relatively novel adoption, if you will, for the United States. It's flip-flopped here and there over the 20th century. So we'll start with this question, Beth. When did the idea of clock change first emerge and and who is generally credited with this kind of initiative? Well, if you really go all the way back, it probably was Benjamin Franklin who woke up one day. He was our ambassador to France, right, around the time of the American Revolution. And he would sleep till noon. It wasn't unusual because he was out partying and doing whatever ambassadors get to do. I don't know if they have as much fun these days, but in in the 1700s, that's what he did. He he hung out with the Parisians and chit-chatted and drank and stayed up and then would sleep till noon. And one day he woke up early. I think there was some sort of a noise or whatever. And he woke up and it was 7, 7.38 in the morning. And he was like, wow it's bright light and there's all this light coming in and he had the light exposure, you know, that made him feel good. And he was like, you know, we're doing all this, like waking up at noon and then up all night and using all these candles to light our rooms and our environments so that we can see when the sun goes down. And he was like, think of all the candles we could save if we just used natural light. That was his idea. Now, he had a different take on it than we do in our modern society. His take was everybody needs to just wake up early, right? Early to bed, early to rise. But 
that was where the first thought came about, like, could we somehow match our life to when we're doing our human things? And in his, his mind, it was waking up early so that we could make the most use of the natural sunlight and not have to use candles, which clearly evolved to electric, you know, electrical light and everything else over time. That was the first concept. And it really didn't really go anywhere until World War One and World War Two, when we had to save energy. And the thought was we could save energy by again trying to match what was going on in our lives with with light and if could we move the light to when we needed it the most and used it the most and that's when the the concept of daylight saving time it's actually daylight saving time not daylight savings time daylight saving time came 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 to be let's just move some of this light later in the day and we'll save all this energy and everything will be great and we're fighting this war and this world war and it'll save all this energy and actually germany and then britain and then the u.s followed those two nations during world war one and everybody was um, adopting it then it wasn't super popular in fact a lot of the farmers even though you you might have heard that farmers like it farmers actually did not like daylight saving time it maybe messed up the cows and, you know, just the whole way that they organized their days. And what ended up happening is it got abolished and then it came back in World War II and then it got abolished. And then we had kind of this chaotic time in America where some people were on it and some people weren't. And everything was very confusing, especially when people were traveling from one city to another. So eventually, in the 60s, we got this Uniform Time Act. And this was Congress, the federal government said, look, everyone is going to be on daylight saving time for just part of the year. At that time, it was the last Sunday in April until the last Sunday in October, and it's, it's moved around since. But you can opt out if you want. You can, as a state, decide you want to stay on permanent standard time and not move your clocks in April and October. And two states elected to do that, Hawaii and Arizona, and they remain on permanent standard time to this day. That's the brief history. You did an excellent job in, in a short amount of time going through almost seemingly about what, like, 250 years there or so. So <laughs> great job, Beth. And I mean, there was a, a, a period, if I remember correctly, in kind of the early 1970s in the US when there was an energy crisis and permanent daylight saving time was adopted in response to that. Yet as I prepared for this and also educated myself over the last year, as this has become more of a hot topic, from my understanding, the experience over those couple of years from a wellness perspective, from a safety perspective, was pretty poor across society. And that led to the quick abolishment of that adoption of permanent daylight savings time. So it's not like we haven't done it previously. We have some evidence to draw on. Is that correct? Yes. I'm really glad you brought that up because there was a brief period of time, as you say, in the 70s under the Nixon administration where we thought we were going to save energy during the um, Mideast OPEC oil crisis. And two things happened. One, people really did not like it. It was super unpopular because these kids were going to school in the dark. And remember, this is when school started at 8 or 8.30. And now they start so much earlier. And people were still upset, even though schools were still, because it was still dark. It was dark at 7.30 in the morning. So imagine what it would be like today if we had permanent daylight time in the winter and we have schools starting at 7.30 in the morning, it would be even darker. So that that was great. That was That's one reason 
you're absolutely right, where it was unpopular. And then my understanding is that when they calculated out the energy savings, it really was quite negligible. We just weren't saving a whole lot of energy to begin with. So there really wasn't a reason to do the permanent daylight saving time in the 70s to try to save energy. Gotcha. And it really does seem, if I'm, I'm kind of hearing everything correctly, that this clock change initiative largely emerged to, in the name of kind of economic or resource conservation emphasis rather than one's kind of well-being. Is that fair to say? I I think it is. I mean, I I want to be I want to be credible and I, I think it's important for your 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 listeners to hear both sides. I mean, there is something to be said for if you're working all day and you're getting out of work at five in the afternoon and it's light rather than dark at certain months of the year. Um, and that's another argument that's been made for permanent daylight saving time, which I get it. I mean, as I said, I, I love light and I want as much light as I can. So I get that we want that afternoon light. However, I do believe when you look at the health benefits, it's more important to get that light in the morning. It gets us going. It helps our mood. It synchronizes our clocks with the rest of the outside world. Um, We use, for example, we use light boxes and seasonal affective disorder. You know, that sad condition where people are are moody at different times of the year. We use light in the morning. That's when it has been scientifically proven to be most effective. So that morning light, if we have to pick, I would pick the morning light. And that's where permanent standard time becomes the healthier choice because it gives us that morning light. I love how you describe that all, that there still can be health benefits of having that evening light, right? It's not like we're, we don't want that evening light. It's just that there is these inarguable benefits to health generally when we average across society, looking at different individual characteristics, phenotypes, whatever it may be, that that morning sunlight supersedes kind of the evening sunlight from a health perspective. Yes. Now, I, I would like to say there, it's, it's not universal, as you say. I think you make a great point, Jesse. Many of us it probably doesn't matter. In other words, if we can control our schedules and and with the pandemic, a lot of us were able, including me, were able to work from home some days a week. Um, It may not be as critical because we can control when we get our light. If I can roll out of bed at 7.30 or eight in the morning and jump on a Zoom call, I can get that morning light when I wake up, even regardless of permanent daylight, permanent standard, where I live, whatever. But if I'm a high school kid trying to drive to school or catch a bus in the morning, um, or I'm an essential worker trying to open up a grocery store at six, six, seven in the morning, that light, that morning light is going to be really, really important to my health and well-being. And that's the rub. In other words, some of us are going to be more affected than others. And having that morning light is really important. Or this may sound paradoxical, but let's say you're somebody who's a night owl and you have to get up early for work. You need that morning light to get you going and be able to get to your job. And not all night owls are lucky enough to have jobs that allow them to be able to sleep in like they'd like to. So they they are dependent on that morning light as well, even if their preference is evening light. Beautifully said. And I love that you're drawing attention to this modern, evolving kind of occupational structure we find ourselves in, in in society these days. But it still has not largely changed the standard start time for the workday is still somewhere 8 or 9 a.m. in the morning, regardless of when that person went to bed that night, regardless of their preference. And so 
we're doing potential harm by not having that sunlight in the morning. And I think this brings me to a point that I struggle with, Beth, and I'd love kind of your perspective on. It really seems in many ways, and not just from our discussion today, or not certainly not your paper. I, I don't see this as a dichotomy in your paper, but I see it presented elsewhere as a competing forces discussion of economics versus health. The economic benefits substantiating daylight savings time versus the health benefits substantiating permanent standard time. But I find that an asinine way to look at this. And it's just confusing to me because shouldn't the morning sunlight lead to greater vigilance, better move, which in turn should lead to better performance in the workplace. So you have more workforce productivity, thus an economic benefit. On the same token, as we're presenting both sides here, if that evening light does really lead to people being more active in the evening and actually exercising more frequently than if they were on permanent standard time, because that's a reality, that's a possibility too, that the general public may not get active and go exercise in the morning. And if they don't have the sunlight at night, they may not do it in the evening. So that seems to be a health benefit for daylight savings time. Where do you see this? Is it unhelpful to view this as an economic versus kind of health uh, argument? Well, you, you said some great things. Let me just unpack them a little bit. First of all, in terms of the economics, you're absolutely right. I think if we were able to do the studies, we would show that there is when you're when you're more aligned when you're waking up easier and all you have less tardies for school you have less sick days for work there is going to be an economic benefit to aligning ourselves with morning light which is what the um, permanent standard time gives us the, the healthier choice in terms of of our morning light. However, it's a harder thing to measure than let's say credit card or debit card transactions. And in my review, uh, in our position statement, I did mention a really clever study that JP Morgan and Chase did looking at consumer spending. And they compared, for example, Phoenix, which stays on permanent standard time all year round with LA, Los Angeles, that goes back and forth. And people were more apt to stop at the grocery store and pick up milk when it was lighter, you know, due to permanent daylight time. And I get that, you know, when it's dark outside, you just kind of want to get home. I don't know if I need milk, I get milk. I stop at the grocery store and get milk. But you know, I can see where where that is a valid argument. On the other hand, as you say, there are all these other economic arguments that may be harder to measure, but maybe there. You know, the other one that fits into the exercise is the idea that heat in the afternoon. And we know it's getting hotter every year. That heat in the afternoon means we have to run our air conditioning harder in the afternoon. And also, we may be more apt. So, you know, me, so there's, there's maybe less of an impetus to exercise, even though it's lighter, daylight saving time, because it's hotter. So we don't want to get out there. So we want the light in the morning when it's cooler, and we cool down our atmosphere overnight so that you can get out and run. And people do that in Arizona. People actually play golf in the morning in Arizona because they're on permanent standard time and they have more light. So, so even though a lot of places, maybe people play golf later in the day and you can make the argument that with permanent daylight time, you'll have more light to play golf in the afternoon. In Arizona, because it's so hot, they prefer to play golf in the morning and they can do that because they've got their standard time, you know, their permanent standard time. So they play golf and then they go shower and go to work, whatever. So I guess the argument I'm making is that due to heat, you may be running your AC later in the afternoon if you're on daylight saving time. And you also may not actually be getting out there and exercising in the afternoon, even though you have the light. And I put that in the paper. It was impressive that exercise didn't always increase when you had daylight saving time because of that, you know, the possibility that it was heat. They, they actually had fewer people exercising during daylight saving time, potentially because of the heat. 
So it's complicated, right? The other point I want to make is the country of Mexico recently went to permanent standard time. And they not only talked about, the president not only talked about the health of the Mexican people, but he talked about the energy savings, which I think is fascinating. So he was making the point that they were going to actually save energy by being on permanent standard time, probably related to this idea that you wouldn't have to run your air conditioning in the uh, late afternoon hours if you were on permanent standard time, as much as you would if you moved the light to the late afternoon on daylight saving. Oh, very interesting. And uh, I just couldn't help but smile the entire time you were describing life in Arizona, as I don't think I shared, but I spent 22 years of my life having been born and raised in Phoenix and living in Tucson. And that was more or less my life. And I think strongly contributed to kind of my maintained morningness preference across life. You know, you pointed it out. People are up at 6.30 and going hiking, and it starts their day that way. And the reality is 115 degrees in the afternoon, you go outside and exercise, that's heat stroke just waiting to happen. So it's certainly a major deterrent there. And also, you know, hand up here, when I reach the end of a long work day, my brain is more or less, let me go find a couch to sit on, not let me just go run a half marathon, right? I may wake up in the morning with intention to do it that evening, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to do it when I get to that point. So I think it's it's a complicated discussion with many factors involved. And I, I want to be really mindful of your time. And I really appreciate kind of how you unpacked the kind of economic and health competing forces, if you will, or not really even competing forces. They both seemingly are overlapping in some capacity. But I want to kind of conclude on this stance. And it, it's a tough one for me because I struggle with this. I, I approach in as a training clinician, again, not a licensed clinician by any capacity, but working with clients, I really start from kind of an education standpoint. And then for individuals to make their own decisions based on having an informed opinion. You know, if you come to me and say, sleep health is not important, well, I'm going to give you every reason why I think sleep health is important and try and find one that motivates you to find that sleep health is important. But if you hear all that, you take it all in, you still think sleep health is not important and you want to live your life that way, that's on you. That's your choice. That's where I come from, right? But this is the decision that's happening kind of at the national level, which takes away that individual freedom in some capacity. So I just wonder, Beth, do you have any thoughts on who should be making these decisions and whether there should be flexibility kind of at the state level, the county level, how, do, how, do, how can we navigate this so that it can be in some ways personalized? Yeah, I, I think this is definitely an issue that should be made at the state level. The reason being is and we, there's so many geographic issues here. For example, we just talked about the heat in Arizona. Um, if you're in a southern state, you may very well want permanent uh, standard time for the reasons we talked about um, having just too much heat in the afternoon for exercise and well-being. And then if you're in a northern state that borders on the western edge of a time zone, you're going to have even more potential for lighter in the morning and late lighter in the evening. So for example, I like to tell the story of when I've been in Michigan. I used to live in Michigan and then we were in Minnesota this summer on July 4th, and the fireworks had to start after 10 o'clock at night because there was still light in the sky, which is super not healthy for sleep. And similarly, in the winter, if we were to go to permanent daylight time, Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is, I live in Tennessee, and Chattanooga, I live in Nashville, but Chattanooga is an Eastern time zone. We're in Central. And Chattanooga borders on the western edge, so they would not see sunlight until 10 to 9 in the morning for the first two hours in January. That's way too late. Uh, so depending on where you live, the point I'm making is depending on where you live, you're going to have unique issues to your state. And what works for, I mean, it may make sense. The Northeast is in pretty good shape, regardless of what they decide to do with permanent or daylight saving time or permanent standard. Maybe they end up going to Atlantic time, right? They end up changing their time zone. Um, so I think that 
the idea is that every region needs to do what's right for them. And that's the beauty to me of how it was set up. If Tennessee decides, and I hope they do, that we should be on standard time permanently, we can make that decision as a state. We don't need the federal government to get involved in that decision. And that's what Arizona and Hawaii opted to do. Uh, and I think that's a very, very important and healthy decision rather than, and I, I don't wanna say that I don't think the federal government has a role in our health, it certainly does, but on this particular issue, because it's really not a partisan issue, it's more where you live, you know, what you have to do with your life, both conservatives and liberals are on both sides, so to speak of, of um, you know, some like permanent standards, some like permanent daylight. I really think it needs to be a regional or a state issue. Beautiful. Well, I elect you to make this decision so that it can be at the state level. And uh, I'll steer the the listeners as well back to the the position statement regarding kind of the individual or the the merit to wanting this to be flexible, to be adopted kind of on the individual state level. You bring up the time zone border effects, which you just kind of alluded to, and other individual characteristics related to geography, various proportions of occupations, things like that, that are relevant factors when we start thinking about making kind of these cemented changes there. To kind of close down our actual discussion on the position statement before my final last question, the hardest question of the entire podcast. So prepare yourself there. Highly stressful. But just to close down the actual position statement itself, you know, the legislation decision is still unresolved currently, or, or it's still seemingly in limbo, maybe is a better word. Do you have any guidance for the listeners on where they should go for more information or how they might be able to get involved currently either at the state or federal level? I, I think it's a great issue to get involved in. You can really, as a sleep researcher or a sleep clinician or a circadian re- researcher, you can really bite your teeth on this issue, so to speak. I think it's a great issue to get involved with. And I would say you can go to um, Save Standard Time as a website that has advocacy information on it. You can go there. And it's really fun to be able to say, I'm going to make a difference for the health of the American people, for example, at my state level. So I would encourage you to look at those resources and think about it. And and just to me, the most important thing is to be able to get the word out about sleep. And that goes beyond this particular issue into sleep is important for our health. It's important for our well-being. It's important regardless of what condition somebody might have. It's important for our school kids to get enough sleep. It's, it's, it's important for the elderly to get enough sleep. So this is, to me, one piece of the pie, which is a really interesting, exciting legislative issue. But this goes beyond this particular clock change topic to so many different topics in uh, our world. Beautifully said, uh, Beth. And I must thank you not just for joining me for today's episode, not for just writing this position statement, but also for kind of championing this perspective kind of at the bigger picture, bigger level, and all the efforts you're making on that front. Now, to close down today's episode, Dr. Beth Mallow, I just got to, you know, I got to hit you with a really tough question here. Okay. Um, So again, thank you for finding time to sit down with me, but now the gloves are off and I'm coming hard in the paint, so to speak. <laughs> I know we weren't necessarily discussing your research and I know you've done a lot of great work in the context of autism and, and epilepsy and a lot of other things as well, but you still are, you know, a sleep and circadian researcher, as I alluded to, which leads us to our final question here, which is asked to all the guests of this podcast. Are you ready, Beth? I am. All right. If you were afforded unlimited funding, so no constraints at all to explore a singular sleep and or circadian research topic, then what would you investigate? I have started getting really interested in dreams. I know that sounds a little bit off, but I do feel that 
when we dream, there's a lot that could be unlocked about our mental health and our physical, you know, our well-being in the world. And there's links to memory. I, I this has become one of my new hobbies is trying to understand, remember dreams. I would love to spend some time investing in the neuroscience of dreams. And I know it's gotten a bad rap with Freud and others, but I do feel that uh, there may be something there that could help our, our well-being as a society. So I would, I would spend some time and effort and funding into understanding dreams, how to teach people to interpret their dreams, lucid dreaming, where you can actually change your dream around when you're in it, recognize your dreaming. That's what I would do. That'd be a dream. <laughs> well, I love that, Beth. And, uh, you know, I think we hit on the temptations earlier with my girl. So I'll just go with uh, John Lennon to close it down. I think you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. So we can dream for permanent standard time. Clearly, we're not the only ones, Beth. Thank you so much, Dr. Mallow, for, for finding this time. And, and I just wish you well. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society, as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to acknowledge the other members of the podcast team for their efforts behind the scenes. This includes Katrina Burroughs and Shivani Gianni, who serve as podcast managers, as well as Dr. Mohan Dutt, who produces these episodes. Furthermore, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Ruloff Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.